Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, it's not all bad news for the state cyber workforce. I really want another positive point on the workforce is that I think this consistent pressure on the talent, uh, a positive aspect of it is, is also making the CISOs and the CIOs look for creative ways to solve this problem. There's no going back now for hospital data sharing. I had to promise the hospitals that once COVID was done, we'd turn it off. And I reminded them of that and they were very sharply rebuked me for even thinking of it. So <laughs> they, they, they're all dependent on it now. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. The use of mapping technology in voter registration systems and the drawing of precinct boundaries is expected to grow quickly over the next half decade, according to new research from the National States Geographic Information Council. The group's report concludes its 40-year geo-enabled elections project, which tracked how state election directors integrate GIS into data systems. Just 25% of election officials have moved to .gov websites, according to a report from the Center for Democracy and Technology and the Center for Tech and Civic Life. The fact that only one in four election offices comes two years after the .gov Act passed Congress and a year and a half after the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency made moving to .gov free for all governments. The National Association of State Chief Information Officers say that Stephanie Dedman, Tennessee's CIO, will serve as the group's president for next year. Dedman takes over for Maryland CIO Michael Leahy, who led the group for the 2021-2022 year. Dedman will now lead the organization's programming and board for the next year. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. State government chief information security officers are staring down a talent gap, according to NASIO and Deloitte's biennial cybersecurity survey. The officials charged with protecting state networks face increasing difficulty in training and recruiting talent to carry out cybersecurity work in the public sector, the survey says. NASIO's Meredith Ward and Deloitte's Srini Subramanian tell StateScoop's Benjamin Freed about the workforce challenges. On the workforce issue, this has... Uh, and you know this from covering the issue for a while, this has really reached a crisis level uh, with cybersecurity workforce in state government. Um, You know, you noted competing uh, for salaries, um, trying to retain folks uh, when there's other opportunities has been a real challenge. A couple of things that pop out at me, and I'm sure Srini will have some other things to add as well. Um, A lot of states are not offering remote work. And as we note in the report, Uh, In the private sector and a lot of other industries, that has just become expected. Um, So state government has some modernization to do if they're going to meet uh, current and future uh, cyber workforce needs. When we talk about this being a crisis and and finding new new opportunities for recruitment and entryways into the workforce, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, with millennials, Entering the middle now, entering the real middle prime of their careers, and Gen Z workers uh, really exiting college, coming into the workforce. Can you talk more about the severity of the, of, of this crisis? Well, I don't. I don't want to, you know, put it out there that states are not safe because of the workforce issue. That's certainly not what the report um, says, and that's certainly not the case. You know, what we're seeing is a large increase in outsourcing right now, and I do believe that that will increase as the years go on. But kind of back to the original, um, the heart of the question, what do really, what do states need to do to to face this crisis? Um, You know, besides offering things like remote work um, that are appealing to, as you say, generation 
um, Z and millennials uh, and generations after that, you know, the call to serve and placing importance on public service can only go so far. You know, one of the things that was not surprising to me, but concerning to me is that a lot of CISOs don't have purview into DEI practices or, you know, incomplete awareness. And that's something that we know from, you know, lots of research from a lot of great organizations that's really important to these generations. Um, You know, and the other thing that I think that we call out here in this report is the time that it's taking to hire talent um, is really putting states at a disadvantage. If it takes you know, three months, six months, or over six months to hire someone. And we know that folks are really staying in jobs for a couple of years. You know, we don't really have the 30-year lifer state government employee, like no industry has that really uh, anymore. So if it's taking that long to get someone in the door, and then they're only going to stay for a year, two years, three years, those are the things that really have to change and have to change immediately for states to be able to meet uh, the needs that they have now and in the future. One thing that's that's pretty boldly highlighted in the report is that only 25 percent of their, of the states uh, reported offering remote work as a way to attract talent, um, and that I think we expected. We all expected there would be a retreat from all the remote work over the you know the the last uh, two two and a half years. But did you are we surprised to to um, that to see that number that low? Only that only with only a quarter offering uh, remote and flexible. Well, before Srini jumps in, I just want to say that the thing that surprised me is that this is not obviously our state CISOs making this policy because we also have asked states in the past, are you confident in um, the remote work capabilities that were put into place during the pandemic? And they've said yes. Um, They've told us in the past that there haven't been any major incidents because of remote work. So this is something that I know that our CISOs and our CIOs continue to advocate for uh, and that they'll continue to do so. So, you know, I think there are a lot of issues for why states kind of um, on a large scale are abandoning some of the remote work that was happening over the pandemic, uh, but certainly don't want to say that our that that's our state CISOs. Uh, They would get upset with me for that. So but Sharini, jump in. I know you have a lot of thoughts on this topic. No, totally. I think um, you are absolutely right. In um, in the remote, um, there is an ability to do it. I think, again, it goes back to my original point of having the policies adjusted to enable, um, I would say, part-time or near full-time type remote work capabilities for the uh, for the staff is a, is a critical element. And you mentioned about the millennial workforce, <laughs> Benjamin, and uh, when it comes to the millennial workforce, so I look at, uh, Meredith pointed out a few data points from the survey, and I'm going to take one related to the top factors that the CISOs are citing to attract and retain talent. Now, the top factors are still opportunities to serve and contribute to the state. Absolutely. That's going to be the impact of public service will appeal to the millennials. But if I look at the two other items, job stability, pension and retirement plan, now, is that really what are the top factors that are going to be attractive to the millennials uh, compared to ability to do remote work, ability to get trained and, and get additional skill sets? So I think there has to be a focused attention on the future of workforce in state governments and how do you give the flexibility for them to learn, acquire additional skills 
and still be um, open to the idea that they might be uh, they might be going and working for private sector or federal government uh, over a period of time. Uh, I think um, the concept of using the job stability and uh, having the millennials work in one place and retire there uh, may not be as appealing to the millennials. I mean, do you think, Meredith, there is some there is some uh, um, something in there? I, I agree with you, Srini, and I'll say, you know, I'm Generation X, we don't care about anything. So I have to, you know, put my, <laughs> isn't that right? I have to put my other hat on. Um, but I, I agree. I think that, yes, a retirement plan is great. But I think that especially people who are graduating college, you know, 22, 23, whatever, is that the top thing on their mind? Probably not. We also need to open up to the fact that not everyone does need to go to college and especially to do a lot of these state cyber and IT jobs. Um, a college degree is not required. So we have states like Maryland, like Indiana, who are really leading the way um, and saying, you know, we're going to do skills-based hiring uh, rather than specifically, um, you know, education-based. And I do think, Ben, that that is one um, way that states can really help their talent crisis in the future. Right. We have seen uh, a growing number of states uh, start to tailor their their job listings to uh, de-emphasize education requirements and, and go for more uh, skills. I, I should also, uh, I also wanted to point out that, um, that as you said, Meredith, policies over remote work are generally not the CISO's call. Uh, and uh, as the report highlights, you know, uh, a vast majority of them, I think close to, you know, 90% said they're, 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 they're confident in uh, their remote, you know, in, in right. uh, the security of their remote work arrangements. Uh, so, so there's a lot of confidence in, in there uh, from the CISO's. Um, so Benjamin, may I, I maybe one another positive point on the workforce? Mm-hmm. Is that I think this this consistent pressure on the talent is also uh, a positive aspect of it. Is is also making the CISOs um, and the CIOs look for creative ways to solve this problem. And one of the emerging and evolving method is why wouldn't the state uh, public higher education team with to provide cybersecurity services? I mean, particularly in the context of local governments consuming such services. And why wouldn't the public higher ed train their students as part of the curriculum and they are doing part-time work? And I think that is a that is a model that is evolving and we are going to see such creative new ways that um, that, that, that the CISOs are going to address the talent crisis in the future. Yep. And, 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 yeah. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely agree, Srini. But I do want to move away from the workforce and and talk about some of the the uh, survey responses you got when you uh, talked to CISOs about in their budget. Uh, historically, the amount of of uh, funding for cybersecurity was between one and three percent, but we're now seeing a bit of movement on that. I think you you we found in in some cases uh, some states are even up to ten percent, which is close to where a lot of federal agencies are. So has there so has there actually been documented uh, movement uh, in the uh, funding for cybersecurity? So so Benjamin, as you can see, it's very small, minor movement. Um, and for most part, uh, while the states have are talking about some year over year increase, or maybe from the last survey to this survey. Um, the, the biggest um, factor we think is uh, is the the overall budget situations in the states, uh, but there is no consistent longer term sustainable funding model. So, for instance, if you look at the um, the factor about is cybersecurity part of the 
uh, line item of a state budget, the answer is still predominantly not there. And um, while even the the new federal funding that is coming to help the states and local governments uh, can provide some short-term relief, the overall budget challenge continues to be there, and that is an area that that is an area that CISOs have to continue to work on. Because until the time that CISOs are no longer concerned about um, the, the longer-term sustainable funding, they're not going to be able to take on new things. And uh, we are talking about, well, the CISOs need to delegate the operational work and all of the other aspects of um, the, the blocking and tackling aspects of cybersecurity, like security assessments, risk management, and so forth, and really work with the business to tackle emerging technology threats. The CISOs are still very much uh, focused on uh, some of those fundamental needs uh, because of that uh, the lack of significant movement on the budget. Uh, Meredith, what would you say about the budget situation? No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. And especially when you said, you know, cybersecurity is a long game. I I get asked all the time, especially when we testify and things like that in front of state legislators, well, how much money are you going to need to solve the cybersecurity problem? And we always say this is not a project with a beginning and an end date. You know, cybersecurity is an ongoing and has to be, as Shrini said, sustainable um, one thing I do want to point out um, when we talk about, you know, budgets is that when we asked this question, you know, we said we asked for executive branch agencies and we asked for the enterprise security office. 38% of CISO said that they didn't know uh, in all executive branch agencies what their cybersecurity budget was. That's because there are some many states that aren't as centralized as others. And so when cybersecurity functions aren't centralized, it's really hard to get a handle on exactly how much money is being spent on cybersecurity. So, you know, I would say just a plug for centralizing cyber activities. We know from some of our previous surveys that states are, CISOs think that states are more secure uh, to have a centralized structure. So a lot of, a lot of this data, you know, really just um, uh, partners with each other, you know, from, from years past. Um, but that's a, that's a big number. 38% are not sure in executive agencies, uh, what the total cyber spend is. Yeah. But at the very least, it does seem like CISOs have re you know, reported this year that they are gaining a bit more influence, uh, in, in their respective governments. Uh, certainly, you know, they're, they're more saying that they're, they're getting, FaceTime with the governor or, or, or uh, cabinet level secretaries. Are they, are CISOs, uh, you know, getting a little bit more uh, attention uh, these days? Well, I think they've always had some attention. It just depends on, is it negative or positive? Um, and of course that has nothing to do with the CISOs themselves. But as we all know, when there's a crisis, when something happens, um, everyone kind of looks around and says, okay, who's going to fix this or whose responsibility is this? And so, you know, again, along with that theme of cybersecurity is a long game, so is the CISO position. Um, and it's really interesting how we've seen that evolve over the last, you know, 12 to 14 years. So what I think is, and I've become encouraged, especially in the last four or five years, is that cybersecurity is becoming so much more a part of state government and leaders are really understanding how important it is and that we need to be proactive 
certainly the pandemic put a huge emphasis on that with, you know, not, not only just cyber, but IT in general, as IT really kept, you know, states running during the pandemic. So what we hope is that this attention continues in a positive manner uh, and that CISOs can really get some of their initiatives done uh, in states and that cybersecurity um, never becomes an afterthought again. Yeah, and that's um, and I think that's a great way to just wrap up by talking a little bit about the grant program because it is very because the grant program is very much built around the idea of of states giving you know uh, extending more resources to their localities. Um, now I know I'm sure the the survey is pretty much close to wrapped up when the the uh, guidelines and note and funding opportunity came out on the on the on the grant program, but. Uh, Meredith, what are you hearing from your CISO members uh, about uh, about this program so far? Well, I will tell you that since the legislation uh, IIJA was signed last November, our CISOs have been preparing. They've been thinking about what uh, they're going to require of local governments. They've been thinking about their um, planning committees and things like that. But I'll tell you the biggest thing that I think is going to have, I know is going to happen, states are going to use this funding, which the NOFO allows, uh, to provide services to local governments. Sure, you know, states could dole out, um, you know, every locality could get, you know, $500 or $1,000 or whatever it is. However, there's definitely going to be more bang for the buck and more benefit for local governments, um, uh, school districts, things like that if they take advantage of services offered by the state. You know, we've seen a lot of examples of that even before this grant program came about. Pennsylvania is a good one, Srini's home state, uh, where they, you know, have provided fishing uh, training and licenses to local governments at a really low cost. So that ties into this whole estate approach that we're talking about, uh, and it really makes it really makes sense. Uh, if if we know that state governments struggle with a lot of things with cybersecurity, um, and I know that local governments struggle even more, especially when it comes to um, hiring and knowing which services are the best uh, and, and things like that. And so really adopting some of these state services that are going to be offered, um, I think is going to be really positive and something that's going to see some long-term um, potential and growth. Yeah, and Meredith, uh, uh, that and uh, um, and I think in terms of the adoption of uh, services offered by the states, I think there is still a good bit of room for improvement. Um, you would see on figure 15, we show that now we are comparing how the state agencies are fairly mature in adopting the enterprise services offered by at a state level, whereas the local government and public higher ed, uh, there is there is room to move there. The other aspect of the grant, I think that is going to force the continued um, elevation of the influence of the state level CISOs is, um, is their work with the legislature, right? I mean, the, the, the program grant program calls for state level funding and that has got to come predominantly from the, from the uh, local, I mean, state government legislature and using that influence to make sure that the state level funding match as well as the federal funding is really used to establish enterprise level programs that the local governments can adopt and can still maintain some level of autonomy on what they're going to do, but they could they could leverage the services too. 
and uh, and really try to overcome the barrier. Um, I mean, you saw that uh, report, 60, more than 60% of the CISOs indicated that uh, the biggest barrier they see is the reluctance of the local governments to, to take on those services, being uh, uh, the notion that, um, that they could be monitored or managed or be reporting to the state level CISOs. That necessarily need not be the case. Um, they can still adopt the, um, the enterprise level program and still be successful. Srini Subramanian, a principal in Deloitte's Government and Public Services Practice, along with Meredith Ward, NASIO's Director of Policy and Research. You can read more about the 2022 NASIO Deloitte Cybersecurity Survey at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. I'm Jake Williams, host of StateScoop's Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, we highlight more nominees of NASIO's 2022 State IT Recognition Awards. You can subscribe to the podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. During the COVID-19 crisis's peak moments in 2020, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services implemented a critical resource tracker to help hospitals comply with federal and state reporting requirements. The effort won the award for business process innovations at NASIO's 2022 State IT Recognition Awards last week. Charles Carter, the Assistant Secretary for Technology Services at the department, tells State Scoops Colin Wood how the project got going. So if you go back to that period of time, uh, we were starting to hear from states that were getting particularly overwhelmed with COVID. Uh, North Carolina at that time was, you know, like most states, learning about the pandemic. We were uh, inundated with new cases, but at that point, we didn't have a hospital system or several hospital systems that could not meet the demand. But if you remember back to like New York City, um, was a particularly strong case where they they were running out of ventilators. Uh, there were other states that were running out of ventilators. And I remember the uh, woman, Kimberly Clement, who runs our emergency response, literally running around getting people to help her call hospitals to figure out how many ventilators they had, how many beds they had available, and trying to get that on a daily dashboard um, by like 10 a.m. in the morning. And it was, they, they had a survey tool that they used, but it really was not that effective. Um, and so they were just uh, kind of having to estimate the effectiveness of the data that they were receiving. And I just thought, why not try to automate this? Why not try to work with the hospital systems and uh, work with a company called Bamboo Health, who had called in and offered, how can we help? Um, and turns out they had an inventory system that allowed us to build this kind of, we had to configure it a lot to meet the needs of this, this need. But that was the real impetus for it was, I was very worried, and I think the team was very worried that uh, we would not be able to um, you know, that we would have a hospital run out of ventilators hmm. and or they run out of ICU beds and we'd be reacting to it instead of being able to see that they were getting dangerously close towards uh, running out of capacity. And that was the reason why we 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 started down the path of developing this this platform. Right. So as you began to do that, who were the relevant parties? So um, the. Obviously, internal to DHHS, 
where I work, uh, Kimberly Clement, who runs our Office of Emergency Management, she um, she was she was the one who was the pain point, right? In her life, it was a pain point. Not she wasn't, but the 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 fact that she had to corral all 132 hospitals every day was uh, was quite a Herculean task. And every day is just Groundhog Day. She started all over again. Um, she was the main stakeholder. Bamboo Health does our um, controlled substance reporting system. And they had a new tool that they had happened to have shown me recently uh, called Open Beds that allowed us to inventory uh, psychiatric health uh, beds and substance abuse uh, treatment beds. And uh, we took that functionality and said, why can't we inventory hospital beds? And why can't we inventory ventilators and inventory other items? So they jumped on board. Um, and then we also in-house, in fact, won this NASIO award last year for the Business Intelligence Data Platform, which is a place where you bring disparate data sources together and you, you, uh, you make the data work for reporting and analytics. Um, that was an in-house build that we built as well. So it, those are the main stakeholders. And then of course, the hospitals. Uh, we have 132 hospitals uh, in the state of North Carolina, we signed up every one of them onto this platform. And of course, we started with the biggest ones uh, and we we just kind of kept building, building, building. Uh, the first hospital we met with was Mission Hospital in Western North Carolina, and they agreed to be a pilot, pilot hospital for us. And um, we were able to connect with their, EA, their, their electronic health record and automate the flow of data that we needed. Uh, we started with 32 data elements and we started bringing those in and they were literally changing hourly. So instead of getting a survey that we then had to copy and paste data into um, different cells, uh, we were able to automate it completely so that it just ran all the way through to the reports that ran to the governor and to the secretary. Right. So, uh, I'm you know, we don't have to go into every detail, but what did it take to to make all that happen? Was the all the infrastructure there to do that? Well, each piece of that group had infrastructure, but none of it was connected. So we did not have the open beds, the inventorying system. It was not configured to meet the needs that we needed it for. Um, we did not have the APIs to the electronic health records. We had to build those. Um, we didn't... Uh, we did not have the connection to the business intelligence data platform. Um, and we did not have the reports built from that. So really, while we had all of these pieces, they were just kind of glaciers floating out there. We didn't have them connected. Um, our job was to connect them. And our job was to bring the team together to do that. So we built a, um, we started a, um, a daily call with all of the hospitals, whatever hospitals wanted to join. And then we started recruiting hospitals to be there. And they met with our business intelligence data platform people. And then they were on that call as well as the uh, Bamboo Health people uh, who were on the call and their technical people. And over time, uh, the longest pole in the tent was by far building out the correct data element definitions. And I never knew there were so many different definitions for ventilators 
but or adult acute care beds, but there are. And so one hospital will have one definition for adult acute care bed, another one will have a different one. And so we had to line up all of those de those those definitions and uh, make sure that we were grabbing the same data from every hospital system. But those were the people that were a part of it. None of this was connected beforehand, so we had to connect all of it for this purpose. Right, and you acted very quickly. I see that the entire project took less than two weeks, uh, but after that, uh, was there still more work being done on it to, to uh, refine how it worked and so forth? Oh, it took well over two weeks. It, it, it took, um, so to get the, the first group on board. Oh, I see. And, and yeah, connecting them was fine, but to actually get the data elements together I see. and to get more and more of the hospitals on board, uh, that took several months to get all of that lined up. Um, but we started with 32 data elements. We now have over 180 data elements. Um, I had to promise the hospitals that once COVID was done, we'd turn it off. And I reminded them of that. And they were very sharply rebuked me for even thinking of it. So <laughs> they, they, they're all dependent on it now. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different environment um, and one that, that really supports a lot of our hospital engagement with Department of Health and Human Services. Right. So now that the, um, I don't even know what, are we still in a pandemic? I can't tell. I, it, yeah, I'm not sure either. <laughs> but but um, what, how is the system used today? Well, it still maintains those same. So we have reports, um, meetings that are weekly meetings. We have daily meetings with the governor. So these these are still a part of the briefings that go to him, uh, Governor Cooper, as well as um, a lot of the functions that come in from even, you know, it applies to monkeypox. It applies to other uh, uh, items that may be of concern for people. Um, we had, did have one instance where we had a hospital whose, um, ventilator counts were getting low and we had to prepare for, for a response to that. Um, so we had a lot of those functions, but those functions are still important as we, as we talk about relationship building of how do we support hospitals in our function as a uh, department of health and human services. So it's a, while the, the, the need is not as anxious, basically, as it was back then, it's still a valuable tool. Um, and you can think about, for example, if a hurricane were to slam into the eastern part of the state, or if Ian had done a lot more damage and had caused mm. outages and hospitalizations, this would have been an incredible tool to be able to be able to log in to see those hospitals and how they were performing. If they were exceeding their bed counts, can we pull in other hospitals? Can we start moving routing patients to other areas um, or other hospitals. So it would serve that purpose and that particular need as well. Right. Outside of anything technical, do you have any advice for your counterparts in other states or even at your own state in the future if they find themselves in a, in a similar jam where they have a short, shortened timeline and they need to get a complex project involving a bunch of different uh, stakeholders. Yeah. Uh, any advice there? Very much so. I would say, uh, one, do not be scared to collaborate. In fact, you won't be as successful unless you do that. 
collaboration was key for us. Getting all of the hospitals and having a daily stand-up call with 132 hospitals, with Bamboo Health, with our own team, and being able to deliver messages to those hospitals that not always were related to this, but to be able to have that, uh, that, that place where we could have that conversation um, turned out to be invaluable through the whole COVID experience and the whole pandemic experience. So no matter what it is, I'd say identify your stakeholders and open up the floor of communication and realize that you don't have all the answers, that a lot of these answers are gonna come from them. A lot of these answers and solutions are gonna come from those conversations. And you're all just going to get smarter and smarter the more you're communicating, the more you're collaborating. So to me, that was the number one piece of success that came from that was the enhanced collaboration that we have with all the stakeholders. Charles Carter, Assistant Secretary for Technology Services at the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. You can read more about him and North Carolina's hospital automation project at statescoop.com and in links in today's show notes. You can also read more about all of the other projects that won NASIO State IT Recognition Awards there too. The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you hear podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.